complicated issues in public policy, uh, from social media to artificial intelligence. Um, should we regulate this technology? And if so, how? What is the proper role of government in this arena? And joining, to be, joining me to unpack some of these important questions, Jennifer Huddleston, a tech policy analyst here at the Cato Institute, uh, Nicole Turner-Lee, a senior fellow in governance studies and the director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution, and Adam Thierer, a resident senior fellow of technology and innovation at the R Street Institute. And I, I'm gonna crack it open right away and, and just say that is there a proper role for government given what we know about the Constitution of the United States and how freely we ought to be allowed to communicate with, with one another? Is there a role for government in the direct regulation of new tech, new technology, especially those that implicate tech, uh, communications? Adam, do you want to start? I'm going to let Nicole start. Nicole, Nicole go no, let's for Let's go to you, Adam, yeah. Yeah, as the resident Take historian it. here yeah. on the panel. Uh, well, of course there is. I mean, there's a role for government in regulating every single sector of our economy, but there's a question of, like, what sort of regulation we're talking about. And with technology, it's very important to understand that most information technology and modern technologies very much are bundled up with speech and information and communication, and therefore they're even more important. We've been lucky enough to live through a true technological revolution in our lifetimes with the, the internet and the information uh, revolution. And it came about in large part because we got our innovation culture as a nation right. We decided to set a different course than we had traditionally and many other nations had traditionally for analog era telecoms and cable and broadcasting by deciding to break out of the, what I call, innovation cage of the past, a heavy-handed, top-down, very constraining approach to information and to technology and innovation, and instead move into a different world where we allowed new technologies in the digital age to be born free, to be born free of the old regulatory uh, system that they were captured by in the past. And that new model, some people call it permissionless innovation, other people just call it sort of freedom to innovate by default, that has really led to a blossoming of information in our world. Uh, I always tell the story like when I was born in the, the old, old days when before humans set foot on the moon, I guess I'm that old. Um, you know, we lived in a world of information scarcity, almost information poverty. We're just starving for informational inputs. And now the biggest problem we have as a culture of society that we complain about is information overload, information abundance. And I say, yeah, that's a problem. There are some problems that go along with having too much information, but you know what? That's a better problem to have than the old one we used to have. And so I think we've made an important turn as a country and as a culture towards a more and better uh, society because of more technological freedom. If I can add, I think one of the other things when we're talking about technology is it's important to remember that technology itself is a tool. And that often in these debates, when we hear calls to regulate a technology, we actually need to look farther at what is that technology being used for? What are the concerns underlying this debate and are there more appropriate things to do either through societal norms or are, do there need to be specifically targeted regulations to deal with a specific harm or is it something about a particular application of a technology rather than the case of many technologies whether we're talking about the internet and social media or artificial intelligence many of these very general technologies that we see calls to regulate much more broadly when the actual debate is a much more narrow debate so uh adam something you mentioned sort of reminded me of the old soviet phrase americans don't have real problems so they have to make some up <laughs> and information overload strikes me as you know it it's a problem. It's a, it, it is a real problem. It is not made up. But at the same time, uh, you know, how do we address that problem? You know, we've, we've solved an information scarcity problem. Congratulations. You have new problems now. We've defeated scarcity of food, and now, you know, we fight obesity. So, uh, you know, how do we deal with information overload, and is, is there any role for government there specifically? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, Nicole and I have been dealing with this for a long time, going back 25 plus years now, talking about like the constructive role that government can play in facilitating more information, more connectivity, and uh, more cultural cohesion around certain types of key issues or values. But the reality is, is that it's messy, it's hard. And there's only so much government can do to steer us in certain directions as a society that's probably even appropriate in a land that values the First Amendment and freedom of speech. Um, and so I would say that government can play a role into, in helping facilitate certain ends, uh, but we should be very, very careful about them constraining by design in a top-down way our technological choices through what, what is known as sort of a precautionary principle mindset of like constraint and restriction by design. That's where I would draw the line. It's a question of like what default policy we have towards new innovations in this country. Nicole, what's your default policy for new innovation? Well, you know, I think a default policy is obviously starts with privacy, right? And giving people agency over the data that is used to train these new models, that is stored or aggregated for purposes that may defeat, you know, our personal space when it comes to extra surveillance, whether it's uh, surveillance due to marketing or ad reasons or surveillance due to the communities in which we live. And so, in my opinion, and kind of like, um, I wanted Adam to go first because he's older than me. <laughs> About the same age. But um, I wanted him to go first because, you know, early in his career, he did coin this term of permissionless innovation. And what we're seeing now, which also relates to this data overload, is permissionless forgiveness. Uh, many of you are familiar with what happened with Cambridge Analytica. You know, our data was used, and it was basically an apology for the use of that data. And we continue to see those types of actions. And the question becomes, can regulation really, if we're going to have it, point itself in the direction of maintaining public interest, making sure consumers are safe, ensuring that young people are safe when they use these technologies. We've always had technological revolutions, whether it's in the automotive industry, manufacturing, you name it, we've been through it. But there's something about this new technology that we have today where the fuel for it comes from us. We are the subjects. So that's where I think government should play a role and giving people more agency in the way that these tools can manipulate or exploit or surveil us in ways that we're unaware. Let, let me drill down on that a bit. That a bit, just because the you know the new the technology is new, but the principle that we are the target, right. that we are the product in in, in many ways, is not new. Uh, newspapers for a long time, eyeballs, just as they are today, were the product. How many eyeballs are we getting on this? How much can we charge for ads based on, on those eyeballs? So what's the essential difference? I think the essential difference is a couple of things. First and foremost, newspapers, if we all remember what those look like, you know, they were local to our communities. So even though we were the eyeballs, maybe the, uh, the garage sale we were having or the news about someone going to college, we were subjects in a different way. We were manipulated in a different way to tell the local stories that happened in communities. With media ownership and consolidation and the move away from analog media into something that's more digital, we are the subjects. And our algorithms prove, based on the interests, the likes, the affinity groups, that in many respects we're building up these communities that don't look like the local communities in which we live live, which take us out of the loop when it comes to validation. It's really hard for us to look at a story. I might go through this, and I'm looking online on social media, and I'm like, this is a really good story. Then I share it, and then somebody says, you know that person passed away 10 years ago, right? And then I'm like, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that, right? I share that is because it becomes harder for us as subjects to validate whether or not something is true or false, which goes back to what Adam talked about, where you start to get into these First Amendment rights. Who can be the arbiter of that truth? And, and for me, you know, having a 16-year-old who uses social media, for example, and a 21-year-old who has basically grown up with this, these new tools, it, it suggests to me that we're sort of going further and further away in some way. And I'm not sure if government has a role in bringing us back to the center or validating what should be our truth and how we quell misinformation, but I do know that this technology feels a little different because it's been unregulated for so long. If I can... I was just going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it to you, but, it, <laughs> but you're talking about young people maybe uh, having a more difficult time navigating truth and fiction. I don't know how any of you have gotten a chain email from one of your uncles or aunts in the past <laughs> 20 years, uh, but I can assure you that it is not 
exclusively of the province of young people <laughs> to have difficulty uh, of discernment when it comes to matters of truth. Jennifer? I was going to say, we've actually had these concerns about information overload to some degree in the past. We've seen this with other information technologies. One of my favorite Twitter feeds slash you know, websites is a site called Pessimist Archives that pulls all these old headlines about the fears about how kids today are reading too many novels. Mm. You know, how, how the, the landline telephone, the problems of teenage phone addiction referring to the landline telephone, to you know, all of the, these other technologies that we've had similar fears in some ways in the past. But I'd actually like to, to push back a little bit against something Nicole said about the that the previous era of news was local. And one of the great things about technology has been both how it's expanded our ability to be aware of things around the globe, but also how it's created hyper-local news as well. Things that in the past would have never gotten picked up, even by your school paper, you can now have a conversation about online and how that can empower people, particularly young people, to find their own voice and to find ways to spread information about things that are important to them, about things that they may not otherwise be able to find out about or may think that they're the only person that's going through or feeling. In the old era of the analog days where you only had that one local newspaper, not many 16-year-olds would be able to even get a letter to the editor published, let alone some sort of regular column in the newspaper. But now a 16-year-old who's really passionate about a political issue on any side of the aisle has an opportunity to develop their voice at a very young age. And so we have to also think about those benefits and the way this has broken down the barriers to people being able to communicate and to have their voice heard. Right. Can I, can I just comment? Sure. So I completely agree, right? I think that the hyper-local experiences that we have when we're online and connected are really valuable. I think what I was referring to, shameless plug, I have a book coming out next year on the U.S. digital divide, right? Is that we have a digital divide, so not everybody is part of that digital town hall. So we have this challenge where people who uh, look to local newspapers for their news don't get it. And then the other challenge is at Brookings, I, uh, my work intersects with race, technology, and society. So the other issue we have is that local newspapers that were owned by black and minority-owned uh, publishers, they're no longer there. And they served as a, a moment of truth when we came into real serious crises in this country, voting rights crises, rights of women, uh, allyship. And when we lose those hyper-local pieces because of the fact that we've got more digital media, more consolidated media, as a matter of fact, it becomes harder for people to validate or discern their reality. There are a lot of digital, silently digital deserts and very invisible people out there. And so as we have these conversations, I always try to just keep in mind, not to, you know, to argue what you said. You're completely right. You and I know that, right? <laughs> but there are a lot of people that we're finding out just do not have those channels into this information overload. Uh, Adam, is it more or less difficult for groups to organize now than... 30 years ago, 40 years ago? Well, and is it, is it more or less difficult for people to access information that they want 30 years ago? It's unambiguously easier. And, I mean, the, the costs of information collection and dissemination have plummeted across the globe. And many of the problems we face in modern society have to do with the information overload boiling over into misinformation, disinformation campaigns, and a lot of other problems associated with what some people call data smog or information uh, you know, uh, smog. I mean, it's just basically we're overwhelmed by all of the information. So I don't think there's any problem with people getting organized today. It's the quality of the discourse and the information, and there's arguments about polarization and so on and so forth. So it's a really weird, weird, weird world that we live in because, again, going back to my old analog self and, like, when I was growing up, it was worried about homogenization. Like, you know, there were just basically three old white guys in bad suits that delivered the nightly news every night at 630. You either <laughs> saw it or you didn't, right? And, and that was it. And then you just waited till the next day, right? And now it's just an endless bombardment of news and information. You have to figure out, is this news? Is this credible? Is this truth? Right? So pick your poison, right? And, and this all, where we can all agree is that what we need as a society is sort of better informational literacy or media sort of digital citizenship kind of efforts, like efforts to bring us together and think, teach kids and ourselves and crazy uncles and dads like mine like you know hey like not everything you see on a youtube listserv long threaded stirs is truth you know you've got to think through it's like is this truth or is this you know nonsense and and that's really really hard 
And the problem is the information age in the internet was like a tsunami that caught us off guard. We went from that old world to the new one really, really fast, right? And we're still adjusting. I don't know where we'll be in another 10, 15 years as even more information and information outlets come online. But yeah, the problem is not organizing or getting the word out anymore as much as it used to be. It, there's a challenge there. Uh, I mean, Nicole's right. There are you know, information deserts and spaces and places where certain communities uh, uh, and, and minority communities in particular are, they don't have access, right? And we need to solve that problem first and foremost. But then very quickly we get into this different problem, right? right? And th this is the problem. Like, is government going to be able to figure all this out? <laughs> I don't see anybody who's got the answer to that yet. And when government tries to answer that, it does raise some First Amendment mm -hmm. concerns at the same time. Jennifer, uh, Nicole talked about sort of the, the decline of uh, a rigorous process for disseminating information. And that's what, that's what newspapers, I'm an old newspaper guy, uh, older than I'd like to be. Um, and so I remember this process of submitting pieces to editors, revising them, and making sure that what went out was uh, clearly true. Um, and yet uh, we can access so much information now, and it is not of uh, clear quality. People have to decide immediately whether or not something passes the smell test in terms of uh, the, the writing. Like, is there a byline, for example? But I don't trust the government to be a very good uh, uh, replacement for an uh, editorial process of a newspaper. I think it was Thomas Jefferson who said, if I could have only newspapers and no government, that would be an easy <laughs> choice, you know? Um, did you read that online? I probably did. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so, but the, but the question then is, it, it, that would to the extent that you don't trust the government to supplant the role that, that uh, a robust media may have, a local, robust local media may have once performed, that really puts the onus on us as individuals, as uh, parents perhaps, uh, and just people to actually uh, harden ourselves in terms of evaluating information that is presented to us. So prior to working in policy, I was a upper elementary school, early middle school teacher myself. So I always want to preface this with, I know teachers are already handling a lot. And I know that there's a lot of valuable ways that you use technology in the classroom. And I know some of you are also probably struggling with the, the changes in attention span and feel like you're competing against the, the computer in, in the kids' pockets. But I think to, to Caleb's point that we often underestimate the role of education, whether it's classroom education or whether it's more general kind of public health campaigning education or whether it's parental guidance or the guidance of caring adults in helping people understand how to use technology in beneficial ways. Because technology can be used by so many people in beneficial ways. And oftentimes we're only hearing half that story. We're only hearing about the person who fell into some sort of negative rabbit hole online and we're not hearing about the person who found a supportive community when they didn't have one in person. We're only hearing about people who are saying horrible things and we're not hearing about the political organizing that young people may be engaged in or the topics that might not have otherwise been addressed. So I think when we're talking about what can be done, one of those questions is how can education be brought into this conversation? Whether it's more formally through some of the actions we've seen around improving digital literacy standards in classrooms or more informally in the way that, that we all talk to one another about the resources that are available if, we, if there are concerns or even just how we're teaching young people or people who did not grow up with the internet to evaluate the information that they see online the same that way that we would teach them to evaluate the sources that they're citing in a paper. Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting point and um, I wanted to tag on that too. So as part of my book, I went around the country before the pandemic and had an opportunity to visit two schools. Uh, one was in black uh, rural Marion, Alabama, which is a couple of hours outside of Birmingham where I saw a school that was consolidated of K through 12 with 700 students who all had a one-to-one -one uh, tablet uh, in the classroom. And then I went to visit a school in West Phoenix, Arizona, which was predominantly Latina, uh, was elementary school, and they had a similar one-to-one -one solution. 
And one of the things that came up uh, were two findings that I share in the book, but I'll share here, just tagging off of what Jennifer said. One, um, sometimes we have to move out of the way to figure out what the technology can actually do. And I think before the pandemic, when I went on that visit, we found I found principals and educators just trying to figure it out, but figuring it out in creative ways that were not necessarily dictated by the district. So some teachers saying, okay, we're gonna use these tablets and allow young people in West Phoenix, Latina uh, students, to find local people in their community to target. And they targeted their mothers and they highlighted their friends and their pastors. Um, in another school in, in Marion, Alabama, she was giving the teachers the ability to figure out how to use the tablets for music because they didn't have a band program. So this was a way to use the tablets to generate actual music itself. What I learned there is that there is a certain charisma and energy if you give people the resources in their hand and you sort of unbound them from this ability to be, uh, re have it related to performance. Both of those schools, ironically, were very poor performing schools in their respective states. But they had high motivation, high creativity, high interest. Uh, we're experiencing that now in education. I was just on a panel with the Department of Education, and we were talking about generative AI. And there's been a lot of debate around whether or not kids are going to cheat or not. But there was a statistic that was shared that I'll share with this group where they said with a 40% decline in educators, there's been some discussion that generative AI may bring more teachers back to the classroom because it gives them new tools to work with. I, like many people in this room, had a 16-year-old who was sitting in the living room while I was in the office and a, a graduating senior upstairs. And I was frustrated by the things that she got, and I'm dealing with a learning retention issue because she has to take another class over. But one thing that my daughter can do that I couldn't do when I was growing up is that she could work independently, she knew how to collaborate, and she understood the tools for this 21st century. My point is, these are gonna be tools that we're going to have to intuitively introduce into our classrooms, and they're gonna be tools that we're also gonna have to learn about ourselves. Because the train has left the station, and they are now measurements for jobs, good jobs, that are actually out there for these kids to go into. The question is, and this is sort of the regulation question, the extent to which we get scared of this technology or we find better ways for literacy. My same daughter, who I was surprised uh, when we were sitting in a car, said to me one day, Mom, we do more education in schools on driver's ed than we do on digital literacy. And so perhaps, again, there's a way for us to pivot to bring this type of creativity back into the classroom without necessarily putting educators, in my experience with both principals in Phoenix and Alabama, in Arizona and Alabama, where they had to do it because it was part of a core standard. They wanted to do it as part of a learning requirement to see where it best fit with learners and their teachers and their school overall. Who wants to talk about section 230 of the <laughs> I was just giving a really hurrah I, I appreciate it and it, it well it's well noted we'll put it we'll put it on loop on, on re, upon replay Jennifer section 230 of the Communications Decency Act basically says that uh, you know webs interactive computer services I believe they're termed um, are essentially in many cases not responsible for claims that are made on those services or statements that are made on those services? By their users. By the users, that yes, is, yes. That is a key part. So, you know, if in other words, the go-to example that I always use is if I go on your preferred social media platform and I decide to engage in saying a bunch of horrible things about my co-panelists, Adam and Nicole, you can sue me. You cannot sue Facebook or Twitter or whoever I use to say that for allowing me to say that. There's also another part there that I think is incredibly important, particularly to people in this room who I know care a lot about children, which it also affirms the ability of those same websites to engage in content moderation as they see fit with in order to serve the audiences that they're trying to serve, whether it's a general audience or a more targeted audience. So there may be some websites that have very little content moderation. They d want to leave everything up. There may be some websites that are, say, looking to serve a particular type of interest, a particular interest group or a particular subset of the community and want to have very strict rules around very specific subjects, things that they know may harm their community or that they know have even led to fights in the past. 
that also empowers them and preserves the right that says you don't become liable just because you get engaged in content moderation of some sort. Uh, some sort. Now, what we're continuing to see are debates over the future of Section 230. But I would also like to point out, while we often hear this in the context of social media, this is about so much more, because it's about user-generated content in general. That does not just mean your social media platforms that you may go to that are large and, and you see on a regular basis, like Facebook or Instagram or Twitter slash X, whatever we're calling it today. Um, but it also includes a lot of other sites. It includes things like Wikipedia that is all user-generated content. It includes the review sites, or it includes things that, say, may allow you to upload lesson plans and share them with one another. So when we're talking about the changes to Section 230 that are being proposed or that when we're hearing this debate, we can't just think about the impact that it would have on those large social media platforms. We have to think about the impact that this would have on speech, on innovation, and on users especially. Well, I agree with all that. Uh, it's really important that, uh, as Jennifer pointed out, it's not just about protecting large tech companies or platforms. I understand there's a lot of people, a lot of animosities about, you know, the big, biggest tech companies. But the reality is it's, it's, it can be down to, like, your local church's community website, right, and the, and the beliefs and the issues that you talk about there. It can be your local hobby club. It can be all sorts of things, uh, the review sites. I mean, think about Yelp. Something like that couldn't exist without certain types of liability protections against what users upload themselves when they review a restaurant or whatever else. Now, it's not a complete get-out-of-jail-free card. There still are certain standards that apply to tech platforms on certain issues. But the reality is, is that in a very litigious society like the United States, Section 230 became an, an essential way to make sure that we didn't just crush innovation in its cradle with a lot of onerous liability right out of the gates. And when we were working on it in the mid-90s, when I was helping to formulate the Telecom Act of 96, a lot of us didn't really realize how important it would become. <laughs> it was kind of like a, just a little small thing that was kind of buried in the bill, and it was a bill all about, like, old analog-era telecom, hundreds and hundreds of pages of stuff about, you know, what are we going to do about, you know, old cable TV rates, and, you know, what are we going to do about AM radio and stuff? And then buried in the back is, like, a little mention of this thing called the Internet. <laughs> and it's really weird, but that's the way it works out, and, thank, you know, thankfully it did, because this, in my opinion, has been the cornerstone of the blossoming of online uh, speech and commerce has been this, this sort of almost accidental deregulation, if you will, uh, of, of information. And, and I think we're really lucky and we should not abandon it lightly. Right. You know, I, I have such an interesting view on this because I do agree with my uh, colleagues here. You know, any type of telecom policy that you often talk about sort of originated with the telegraph, right? So we're still using these outdated communications policies, and it becomes really tricky when you start looking at Section 230 because essentially it's indemnifying the people who carry this content from being the cause of what could potentially become very violent action. Um, for me, you know, I think that there has to be some liability on the part of companies where people actually die as a result of, you know, collective action or movements. We talk about organizing. We also have to be careful about the extent to which polarization allows for the free flow of information that many of us, including, you know, my parents and their parents, fought hard to actually have social justice and equity in this country and women the same. So we have to always teeter, I think, a fine road on this while at the same time preserving the rights for everybody, whoever you are, to be able to say the things that you want to say, but to say it in a way that does not make other people feel unsafe. And that's where, you know, the conversation around regulation, if we were to just reverse this conversation five years ago, it really was about Section 230, whether or not we're giving tech companies too much power to do the things that they do, whether they're effectively moderating their content, whether they're making sure that children are protected in vulnerable populations, and now we have technologies that basically surpass Section 230 and can do things like AI-generated voice, AI-generated deepfakes, and that goes way beyond a law that's basically protecting publishers. We're talking about the manipulation of emotional intelligence, et cetera. So I, I like being a person like Adam, because I am old, have been in this for a really long time, I feel like we keep paddleballing on this thing, right? But really the thing gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and it becomes harder for us to pinpoint what is it that we care about about and what do we want to regulate on and what do we want to leave alone to the free expression of the internet? It, are there laws that deal with these issues that Nicole just raised? Are there laws on the books that 
handle a lot of those concerns? Yeah. Uh, do you want to start? I'll let you start. Uh, well, basically, you know, there's exemptions for various types of national security law enforcement related things, child pornography, things like this. I mean, there's there's a, uh, intellectual property. There's a variety of certain exemptions that say, like, platforms do have more responsibility and liability. The tricky thing is, is when Nicole talks about, like, harm, like, generic sort of amorphous harms on platforms from information. Like, we have a problem with, like, fentanyl in this country and other types of drugs. And that's a legitimately hard problem to address. And if you just basically try to put the genie in the bottle by saying no more talk about fentanyl or other types of like drugs online, well, good luck with that. That's tricky because uh, there are some beneficial uses to some of those drugs as well, right? And then you put someone in charge of saying like you're liable for any type of talk about that. It means that there's going to be an enormous chilling effect associated with online platforms coming in in fear of liability and just shutting down entire platforms or discussions. And, and to say nothing of the conversations about that would be about how to deal with it, right? That, that, that's right. And an added thing here, like to just take this one step further, and then I'll, I'll let Nicole jump back in, is that like think about the controversies that came up during the lockdowns and COVID, right? And there were a lot of people who had really bitter online exchanges about you know, was there a lab leak? You know, what about this treatment of COVID? All these things. And I, I mean, I was in the middle like, I don't know. I don't know, but I want to hear all sides of this. But there were a lot of people on both sides trying to shut each other down. And there's a really serious danger associated with someone in government saying, this is our standard for what is like truth, when right now we're having a lot of people reveal that like, well, we are, there were actually some more open questions here than we thought. Like truth wasn't settled. Right. That's why you keep conversations going. And if you had really onerous liability and no Section 230 protections of online platforms, they would have to take a sweeping approach to all of this and say, you're talking about COVID and lockdowns. We've got to shut down this conversation. Delete that. Delete this. Delete that. That would all have to go. Because if not, the trial lawyers in this country, by the way, we've got a lot of them, they will come out and they will sue your pants off. It'll be all over for those platforms. And sure, the largest ones will survive. Meta will make it through. Google will make it through. Apple will make it through, but none of the other smaller players will. They'll be gone. Yeah, but I'll, I'll just sort of add a little bit to that, just to put it in context. I, I think part of the challenge is, you know, in any technology issue, we're sort of locked down again to these predated, uh, curated laws that do not necessarily apply to the Internet as we know it. I think about, like, what Google did a few years ago when they said they were going to stop highlighting predatory uh, housing searches and predatory credit card searches. And they made a commitment as a company not to be a part of these dialogues when it came to pawn shops and all these other things. And I remember that that changed the behavior in which we interacted with the Internet. Part of the conversation, I think, in the challenge is whether or not we expect these companies to operate with a level of social responsibility and have some values as to the fact that, you know, when you bring communities together that think it's okay to attack, you know, black men and women, uh, a person, a woman who's, I mean, that's not okay because I think we don't have any recourse on the internet to do so. Ideally, what I think, and you go back to the fentanyl issue, which I have found to be very interesting, is when we break down Section 230, we also miss out on what is legally um, accessible from these companies to make the type of relevant prosecutorial attempts. So I found it interesting, for example, I've been following the fentanyl issue. And what I'm finding interesting, even though we don't want people scaling our back doors, but there has led to some instances where young people have been sold fentanyl mistakenly, and the Internet has helped in some of that prosecution. My point is, we're like... Again, I go back to, if you are not the product or not creating these things, you are on the menu. <laughs> and so all of us, to a certain extent, are on the menu, and so are our students. And so thinking about how do we create a safe, just, equitable society that exists on the Internet, playing by at least some of the rules that we see offline, that it's just not okay to see something on the Internet and take a gun to school and shoot up a school. That's not okay. And so I'm just trying, I struggle with every day as a parent, as a parent, as a, a child of an educator, as a person who grew up in the, <coughs> when we didn't have the internet, we went outside and played dodgeball. How do we manage these environments and spaces where we know that our young people are spending a lot of time 
and we want them to have full agency over their values and beliefs and ide ideologies, but at the same time, we don't want them dismissing that there's a democratic process and a values-driven society in which we live. I, I, you know, I don't disagree with much of that, but I will say this. There's a real question about line drawing for what's an actionable harm sure. where you were going to hold the platform liable, right? So let's talk about fentanyl versus, like, COVID treatments right. versus, say, abortion drugs, yeah. right? We're having that discussion right in this now. country right now, <laughs> right, now. Right, right at this moment. Should an online platform be liable for any communication by anyone on it having to do with an abortion drug? And if I can jump in here, I think this goes back to what I was trying to say at the beginning about technology as a tool. And oftentimes when we're having these debates about should we regulate X kind of speech, whether it's about fentanyl or abortion drugs or mental health or, or suicide or, or any of the other topics that have come up in these contexts, the underlying harm that's seeking to be addressed is not about technology. It's about the fentanyl crisis. It's about what are, what's going on with young people. It's about these other debates that we're having. And technology kind of gets caught up in the middle. So when it comes to issues like fentanyl, one of my questions is, do law enforcement have the resources when they get these cyber tips to respond? Do they have, do, is this something where in, say, changing the law when it comes to online speech, you're actually going to make it harder for prosecutors because of Fourth, Fourth Amendment issues, where you're going to see concerns about how this data was obtained and, and make it harder to go after the actual bad actors in such cases, which are not the online platforms, but are the people selling the fentanyl. Well, and I agree with that. And I'll just say this last thing, right? I, I was watching not too long ago um, the wave of parents suing social media companies. I've been tracking that. Apparently, this one lawyer has like 1,800 cases of parents who in some respects are blaming the social media companies for a range of issues. And school districts and school this too. Yes. Yeah. It's just so interesting yeah. to me, right? Because it goes back to, I think, I think the thumb on the scale for this conversation, which has been really worthwhile so far, is what do we do about these things, right? Because if technology is a tool, it's leading to particular outcomes that people are worried about. And so the question becomes, what aspect of this uh, computational model is, is one in which we need to sit back and think about it. Because I do recall watching an interview, to your point, uh, Jennifer, where they were like, we're suing social media companies because I didn't know what was going on in my daughter's bedroom, but they kind of knew what was going on in my daughter's bedroom. And that goes back to, for many of us, since we're talking to teachers, that Big Brother 1984, you know, there's a lot of people who know more about what's happening. And, and I'm for regulation when it comes to young people, you know, point blank. But I think there's a lot of people who just don't know how to put a handle on what, what regulatory structure is appropriate. And, and just to put a fine point on this, though, like there are conservatives right now in this country, in California, or in Texas, rather, and Florida, who have pushed legislation for, you know, anti-conservative bias on social media and would like to see certain types of talk online censored by government, yeah. right? And then there are progressives in California right. and New York and elsewhere who want the exact opposite. opposite. I was going to say. They want I mean, we, we, you know, at some point we can't have it all, right? There's something's <laughs> got to give there. Right. And when we make government the arbiter of truth and then we deputize, you know, tech companies to be the middleman, you know, the deputization of the middleman by government that doesn't have a firm standard leaves those companies in the lurch like, well, what's our standard, right? right? Is it the California and New York sort of progressive, you know, spectrum or is it the Florida and Texas spectrum? Right. That's why and I one, and one additional thing that before we go to questions here, the key difference, at least in my mind, between 1984 and what goes on in a daughter's bedroom is in the daughter's bedroom, you are allowed to turn the screen off. When you're sleeping? No, I'm kidding. No, I mean, in 1984, no, you you the screen is on. on. <laughs> that is true. We're going to go to questions now. <laughs> we have several, it appears, at the beginning. We're going to start right here. And this gentleman back here. And if you have questions uh, online and are, are able to navigate the chat room, please enter those in, and I'll try to get to a few of those as well. Here. Um, so for adults, I find the question of regulation incredibly complicated. So I'm going to set that aside for now. <laughs> but for kids, um, it's my understanding that companies can now design you know, their intention is to hook these 10, 11, 12-year-olds. If they have them online for hours upon hours, that's success to them. 
is there any regulation to prevent that from happening? And do you see regulation for kids entirely different than you do for adults? Um, just many of these kids are so hooked at an early age and we seem to be allowing that to happen. Is there any regulation that can prevent that? You wanna talk about Utah? Yeah, I'll start with this one. So first, I think it's important to recognize that there are already some rules in place around kids, particularly when we're talking about those 10, 11, and 12-year-olds. We have COPPA that is designed to make many things 13 and up. Um, we certainly have seen some debates around the age of COPPA and the age of different proposals. But again, it goes back to there are a lot of different household preferences and a lot of different household norms around what is the appropriate age, what is the appropriate amount of time, what is the appropriate use. If, if probably everyone in this room would say there's a different age that you should first let a child be alone on a cell phone. I think to something that Nicole said earlier, one of the things we're missing is a conversation around what is the conversation you're having the first time you give that child that cell phone? What is the conversation what, that parents are having the first time they help their child set up a social media account? And instead, what we're seeing are people turning to government to take away many of those choices. And in those families where technology has been a lifeline for young people to finding important communities, to being able to stay in touch with their friends when they were locked down, you know, somebody on another panel I was uh, at recently when this topic came up said, you know, three years ago we told all of our kids to go home and get on the internet and that it wouldn't matter that they were just meeting up with their friends online. That was the only thing safe to do was to go on and get on the internet. Now three years later we're telling all of our kids to get off the internet. It's not safe for them to be on the internet. And that we have to have a much more nuanced conversation that is left up to civil society, is left up to parents to help navigate the fact that this is not a one-size-fits-all solution. Utah's advanced legislation to basically force a digital curfew on all, you know, I don't know what the cutoff is age-wise, but other states are looking at that and various types of age verification mandates. I mean, you know, I, personally, I'm very concerned about, like, the idea of, like, government playing nanny to my children in my house, but I understand a lot of parents are fed up because they feel overwhelmed and... Like, how do we strike that balance? A lot of technology companies have built in truly outstanding tools into these devices to basically limit, like, access for kids for all sorts of things. Now, kids are smart, and they get around a lot of that stuff. Oftentimes, parents will go to their kids and say, how do you help me out on this thing, right? <laughs> you know, but at the same time, what's the solution to that? It's, it's, we've got to get better at those tools and figuring out how to help our kids and mentor them through this stuff and learn with them. I mean, or else we are going to just leave it to government to say we have, like, an enforced curfew. And, yeah, if you want to talk to your kid after, you know, 9 o'clock at night, too bad. We've got a forced curfew. Can't break it. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm against that world. Yeah. Well, I'm against that world. I mean, to your point, I think we do have an, a lot of uh, child protection laws on the books. And I think the question has become, are they updated enough for age verification and things like that that are not necessarily included? I do worry for the purposes of the conversation we just had that we don't want states to set up a patchwork of laws that like tell us when kids can turn on and off the Internet and when... Uh, schools can do the same as well. Um, and we also want to be sensitive, and I'll just go back to the example of Maricopa County where the kids were in Phoenix. Those elementary school students all had phones, and it wasn't for the purposes that we thought. They had phones in case a parent was deported. And so they needed those phones to be able to stay in contact with their family members, which blew my mind because I had not heard that story before in my work doing this for the last 30 years. So I think at the end of the day, you know, it would be good for Congress to actually invest, when we talk about child regulation, not only in some of the things that are on the books, but like the literacy and education and appropriating those funds to the Department of Education to do things like we talked about previously. There's no money for that, right? And we see district by district come up with their own rules, and we need something that's much more uniform. Uh, Jennifer, you know, some of the work that you've done deals with this age verification concern that a lot of uh, people in Congress and in state legislatures would very much like to see proliferate. Um, but there, there are significant risks that are created in having that kind of system at all. There are significant risks, and they are significant risks, particularly to the most vulnerable people who need this access to communication 
to to really build that community and and whatnot. So let let's let's get down to brass tacks about what age verification would ultimately mean. First off, the only way to verify if someone is under 18 is to also verify that they're over 18. So this isn't just about the 13 year old you handed the phone to. This is about every internet user having to when you go to a website, when you go to a social media platform, verify your age. Now, depending on the particular law we're talking about, we're talking about having to upload your government-issued ID. We're talking about biometrics and facial recognition. We're talking about, in some cases, but you have to verify that you are the parent of the young person, uploading birth certificates and other documentation to prove that you are, in fact, the parent. Now, think about the type of situation Nicole just described. Mm -hmm. Think about the people that you may know that may be in your classroom where they're in an abusive situation or they're in a situation where they're willing to come to the guidance counselor but they're not willing to go to their parent. Now they don't have access to that form of communication. What does that mean not only for their access in that moment but for their future life skills? What does that mean for the very concern that these laws say they're targeted at? And what does that mean for us as adult users who may be trying to just get online to communicate with our friends and family and now have to provide government-issued identification? Like state IDs. Um, so I've heard lots of problems with the government trying to regulate these new technologies. I was wondering if there's any role for industry to regulate it itself, what that could look like, and then what could be some consequences of a self-regulating industry? Jennifer? I think we've seen an amazing response from industry, and oftentimes that's something that's overlooked. Um, when you look at the number of parental controls that are out there, to, to a point that was made earlier, it's more about ensuring that parents are aware what's out there at every level of the internet stack. And by that I mean there are tools that are available from your cell phone provider or your ISP. There are tools available on the device itself. There are tools available on, every, on almost every app around what kind of content you're going to allow your child to see or how much time they spend on it. So there's a wide range of tools out there. And one of the advantages of this being done at an industry level is what those tools look like in each of those scenarios I just described, whether we're talking about someone who's concerned about a device level, whether we're talking about someone who's concerned about the amount of time a child is spending on a particular app, or whether we're talking about someone who just kind of wants to know where their child went online so that if they need to intervene and have a conversation, they can. We are seeing that there's a wide range of, of tools out there, and we're seeing that this is something that industry has responded, particularly to the concerns of parents about. And by allowing industry to respond, we're getting all of these different approaches that allow different services to find the solutions that best fit their needs and best fit their particular audience's needs. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that um, I do think that industry has advanced in terms of some of its self-regulation, uh, but I am worried because I think that without the appropriate enforcement tools or any type of best practices that come out of a multi-stakeholder process, that we get the same result. Because as it was mentioned by someone earlier, you know, a lot of these things when we talk about like age verification, for example, is one of those areas, I actually find the challenge to be an algorithmic transparency. Industry knows when they're targeting a 13-year-old, right? They can actually combine that digital footprint to better understand if they're taking someone down a, a rabbit hole. So one of the things that I've been arguing about, potentially, there's a lot of discussion in DC about labeling products. And if you all remember, we labeled movies, we labeled games. I'm not sure how you label the internet, right, in an effective way. So I, I have some pushback on that. But there could be a community of, of perhaps rating systems or something which informs people for kids under a certain age that this is not appropriate. Part of the challenge that we have, why government and industry need to work together, government is like the parent who doesn't know technology and industry's the child, okay? And so you really need a multi-stakeholder approach to really come up with what some best practices are, where there are some red and green lines, and where do we need to think about, like we've done in gaming and other areas, where we need to inform better or have better transparency from industry on some of these tools. So if I may, I think there are two kind of 
things to think about too, though, when it comes to transparency. First off is on the rating system. One of the unique features of the internet is how dynamic it is. A website that was G in the morning can have spam that makes it R at noon and then get cleaned up by the content moderators and be back to PG or G at 4 p.m. And being able to adapt that quickly makes it somewhat unique. Uh, I actually disagree. So I've written about the Energy Star rating process. And some of you, how many have bought a dishwasher or some type of appliance in the last 30 days? It's that big yellow sticker that sits on top of it. That has piqued consumer conscience to say there's been some thought about a variety of scenarios for which this appliance can actually interplay. The water use, the electricity, the durability of the plastic, but it raises consumer competence. I kind of feel the same way about algorithms. You know, like yourself, we've been doing this for a long time. There has to be a critical conscience of multi-stakeholders to help us think about where can we put a better housekeeping seal on this algorithm, the same way we do with ed tech, so that we're putting products into the public domain that even if it changes, it still has been tested among a variety of scenarios and situations. And more, I wrote about that, so more to come, but I'm getting the sign to be quiet, so, I'm mm -hmm. <laughs> so we take more questions. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I'm not a technophobe, and I think that there'd be dragons when you start talking about the government censoring uh, what people think. But I would like to come back to a point that Nicole made earlier regarding personal privacy. And as a former general counsel of Cyber Command, I used to kind of keep up with this stuff pretty well. I haven't kept up with it the last couple of years so much because I've been teaching. But the federal government still hasn't managed to come up with any common sense or any reason of any uh, privacy legislation, which I think has the potential to make the business environment more streamlined. And so I'm interested in your thoughts about that. It is high past time for a federal data privacy law. Sorry, Adam, if you don't know. He's couched between us. This is one of my other favorite things to talk about, so that's why I had to jump in. The patchwork is growing. Last I checked, we're up to 11 states now with the data privacy law, and almost inevitably, some of those laws are going to conflict with each other. When you look at polling, when you talk to people, what they're actually often worried about, to your point in technology, is how do I know, how do I as the consumer make the wise choice about data privacy? And I think we need to preserve a world where we're allowing the consumer to make that choice because there are so many benefits about data. But given this rising patchwork, given the influence of European laws in this area, a federal standard would improve things for consumers. It would improve things for small players who are dealing with having to navigate this growing patchwork. And it would also, I think, really allow uh, could be done in a way that preserves the flexibility in the approach to data. But that needs to come from a federal law and not just from agency action, which I think is one of the other concerns that we're seeing right now. All right, Jennifer, thank you very much. I want to thank all the members of our panel, Nicole, Adam, Jennifer, much appreciated. Uh, and thank you for joining us here today. Uh, I just want to note that Sphere, Sphere Summit, the Sphere Initiative is uh, meant to foster uh, sort of civil dialogue, and uh, definitely we achieved that today, and thank you all very much. Yeah. Thank you. And we can continue.